Welcome to audio from Ballyhalbert Gospel Hall. Listen in as we open God's Word and share how it should impact our lives. We hope it blesses you. Jesus Christ, whose name we ask these things. Amen. Let's just read the psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic or how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Amen. David begins this psalm by giving God his rightful place as Lord. And not just, O Lord, our Lord, but Lord in a relationship. O Lord, our Lord. David speaks about Lord. the Lord as having a relationship with his people. This isn't just the Lord. This isn't just God. This is the Lord, our Lord. And it seems to me if this COVID crisis that we're going through and let us pray that we're coming towards the end of, or at least going that direction. If it has taught us anything at all, surely it's this, that we were made for relationship. We were made to be together. Uh, last week I was reading in the Daily Telegraph a little bit of journalism, and it was entitled something like this. I, couldn't, I can't just remember the exact words, but something like this that if we are anything, we are social creatures. It was something like that. And it was talking about, in the article, the journalist was pointing out the harm that the, the, the coronavirus crisis has done in separating families and keeping children away from school. In fact, it was particularly about little children and how that the lack of relationship has been damaging to them by denying the normality that we have as human beings and meeting with one another. One of the most terrible forms of punishment that we put upon one another is a thing called solitary confinement. It's been a particularly cruel and effective way of breaking the human spirit for hundreds of years. And I was reading a little article in a, in a piece of journalism called Psychology Today, and the the doctor writing this was a lady called Elena Blanco Suarez. So I'm just not just making this up. Uh, but she was writing about, this is in 2019, before the breakout of COVID-19. And she wrote this. Loneliness or social isolation affecting a large part of the population as it became an epidemic in the last few years is known to cause changes in the brain, possibly leading to more serious consequences such as depression and other mood disorders. 
She cited the case of a man whose name was Robert King, who for 30 years, 30 years, had been kept in solitary confinement in a six foot by nine foot cell. He never met another human being. The food was put below. He never saw his prison guards for 30 years. And as a psychologist, she observed how he had changed when he came out. He was no longer able to recognize a human face. When he was given a simple instruction of to make a journey down the street, he couldn't do it. And if he did do it, he couldn't retrace it. So many parts of his brain had just closed down, he was unable to think even rationally. In the beginning of Genesis, right at the very beginning, God told us this would be so, didn't he? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God said this, It is not good for man to be alone. A study was recently carried out in the United States, I think it was three, four, maybe five years ago, and you can see the documentary about it. It's a very chilling documentary. It's called uh, Fatherless America. A study was carried out, and it said back then, four or five years ago, one in three children raised in America are raised without a father in the home. Um, and the, the, the documentary called Fatherless America deals with men walking away from their wives and from the, the mothers of the children and the damage that it causes. In, in our own nation, the importance of men as fathers in a stable relationship is diminishing rapidly as a role and as a, a unique purposeful place for men is continually challenged by the liberal, feminist, gender-neutral gender agenda. Now I know God gives special grace. Some folks, the man has walked out on her. And some folks, she's lost her husband. And God gives you special grace. So if you're listening at home and this strikes home, you pray for grace and God will give you grace to raise those little children. He will. But nonetheless, the evidence is that it's not normal. That the effects of growing up without a dad are that the child is more likely to be aggressive, depressed, have low self-esteem, to do less poorly well and to do very poorly in school, to be more likely to be, end up in prison and to commit suicide, and more likely to use drugs. And, and bad though that is, to lose a relationship like a father. What's it like to lose a relationship like a mother? Or, or, a, or a husband, or a wife, or a friend, or a sister, or a brother. But the greatest of all relationships, the greatest of all relationships, the one most harmed by the loss of is a life devoid of relationship with God. We were not just made by God. We were made for God. We, we all have in, our, have in our homes an object. It's a lovely object. It's beautifully made. It's functional. And if you put it in your hand, you may admire how it's being done. And you may even wonder, how do they make those things? It's called a light bulb. And if your house is bayonet fitting or Edison screw, if it's screw or bayonet fitting, you can see that if you were to look at that light bulb, you would see it had a function. 
And if you'd never seen one before, it wouldn't take long for an inquisitive, intelligent person to work out that this is meant to fit into something. And if you took that light bulb and you looked at the ceiling and you saw a socket, you would realize that, well, maybe that fits into that. And if that bulb was never introduced to the socket, no matter how nice it looks, no matter else what you do with it, it's a purposeless thing. It has no real meaning in itself as an object. But when you bring those two things together, when you plug that bulb into the socket, when the wonderful and mysterious national grid pours 240 volts in through that tiny filament or LED, when that happens and that bulb finds its function, well, that's like when a person comes into relationship with God through Jesus Christ and is transformed and brought to life by the Holy Spirit. Just as that bulb comes into light and is transformed from that object that was meaningless to something that gives light and something that glows in its purpose, so when we find our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, brought to life by the Holy Spirit, then our lives are truly transformed. Writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul wrote this. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we who with unveiled faces, <laughs> these are pre-COVID days, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Writing to the Romans, Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 12, he said, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God made us to come into that transforming relationship with himself. And I repeat it again. He didn't just make us. He made us for himself. Last week, I was recording Yule Finley for last week. I think it was the Friday I was recording Yule on the camera for our last Sunday. And as he was speaking, I was going, oh. Yule's speaking what I was going to be speaking about. <laughs> he was speaking about the, the majestic glory and work of God, if you remember. It was tremendous. And I was thinking, oh, that's sort of what I was going to speak about. Now, ordinarily, I would think, well, maybe that's... But then I began to think. Once we're in heaven, we will be considering his glory and never getting to the bottom of it for all of eternity. So let's spend a couple of weeks at it in practice. I don't think we'll run it out. In, in the next verse, we have a stunning contrast. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the enemy. What does that mean? Out of the lips of children and infants, babes and sucklings. What does that mean? 
Well, I think it's answered when we come to Matthew chapter 21. You remember chapter 21 in Matthew. What happens is Jesus comes into the temple area, into the court of the Gentiles, and there he sees the money changers exchanging. And, and you remember he overchanges those tables and says, you know, this is my Lord's house, the place of my father's house of prayer, and you've made it into a den of thieves. And then the scripture goes on to tell us he did wonderful things and tells us that the children with joy running around his feet. Let me read you some of the verses. Matthew chapter 21, verse 15, 16. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David. And you imagine these wee children are all running around Jesus. You know, around his feet and all around the place in the court of the Gentiles. Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. They'd heard them singing that as Jesus came in to Jerusalem and they're repeating it. Hosanna, Hosanna. They're made it into a song. They're made it into a, into a shout. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. This was the, the fire, the, the, the leaders and the, and, and, and the elders. They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you not read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? You see, the children in their unsophisticated simplicity seemed to be able to grasp that which the religious educated leaders had totally failed to see. The contrast was stark and brilliantly blinding. Little children who could see the glory of God before them in Jesus Christ, who in their simplicity could run around in praise and say glory, Hosanna to the Son of David, quite unashamedly, without fear of religious etiquette, and there was this contrast between the children and standing there, the carpenter and dusty feet was greater than they could possibly have imagined. And it took the small and insignificant to illustrate the gap between men and the majesty and excellence of the unspeakable glory of the Son of God who stood before them dressed in Galilean garb and clothed in humanity. He is the express image of the invisible God standing before them and they failed to see it. And so David and Psalm said it took from the lips of children and infants to bring praise he goes on to the next verse, in verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. You have to ask yourself this question. Who is this God? Now, I, I, I love considering these things. And Derek, you're like me. We think about the universe and you you contrast that with who God is and who I am. And David was doing that very thing. Not, he, didn't, he wasn't troubled with the light pollution from our orange lights and our sodium diffused lights that, that sort of blot out a part of the sky. He looked up into the heavens and his heart was opened and he, he said, when I look into the sky, when, when I see these things, the moon and stars which you've 
set in place, the work of your fingers. Let me just tell you something. And I know, funny, I was, I was, where's David? I was, David Conn, I see you. I was talking to Bruce the other day about this, and he said that you'd already told him, so you know about this. And some of, and I know Derek Palmer, you'll know this too, being in, in, interested in astronomy. But in 1995, they pointed the Hubble telescope at 100 hours at nothing. In fact, it's an article in the National Geographic. It's called, When Hubble Stared at Nothing for 100 Hours. What, what happened there? Well, I'll tell you what happened. An astronomer called Bob Williams said, let's point the Hubble telescope for 100 hours at one part of the sky. What part of the sky? It was a little bit at the end of the plow. You know the way the plow has a bit of a handle on it? The Americans call it the Big Dipper. We call it the plow. And there's a little point. He said, there's a point of darkness. There's no stars there we can see. Let's point the Hubble at that for 100 hours and take 200, 300 photographs exposed to get this. Let's see what's in there. Now, to give you an idea of the size they were going to look at, it was 1 30th of the diameter of the moon. So how big is the moon in the sky? It's not as big as you think. If you hold your hand up and encapsulate the moon with your thumb and finger, it is about 5 millimetres. Unless your arm's that length. But, right, it's about 5 millimetres. And a 30th of the diameter of that is 0.16 millimetres. I tried to hold my fingers apart, and I'm fairly steady of hand, but I can't do it without touching my... It's too thick. You need a feeler gauge to do that. So it's a, it's a point in the sky. If you were to get a pin and touch the sky, that's the point of darkness. Now, the other astronomer said, you're mad. This is a waste of time. Do you not know how many, how many astronomers throughout the world are queued up to get 10 minutes on the, on the Hubble telescope? And you want to take 100 hours and point it at a point of black in the sky? The difference was Bob Williams. Well, Bob Williams was the director of the Space Telescope Science Institute. He was responsible for Hubble, so he was allowed 10% of its time. So he got his way and he said, listen, if this, if this shows nothing, I'll resign from my post. So they did that. Do you know what they found? If you look into the sky just with your naked eye, apparently you can make out about 5,000 stars just with the naked eye. Now, we know there are billions, but you can see 5,000 with the naked eye. They pointed at this point and they were astounded with what they saw because Hubble revealed in that point of blackness Something they'd never seen before. 3,000 extra... You think I'm going to say stars, but I'm not. 3,000 extra galaxies. To put that in context, our Milky Way, the galaxy that we live in, has 100 billion stars, at least. And they found 3,000 more of them in a pinprick of the dark sky that had no stars in it. It's called the Hubble deep field. In 2004 they did it again. bit longer exposure, bit better technology. It's called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field and that exponentially increased the number of stars that they found, uh, universes that they found. They did it again at another part of Black Sky in 2012 and it's called the Hubble Extreme Deep Field and it again numbers beyond our imagining. The Hubble senior, senior scientist, whose name, interestingly, fascinatingly, is Jennifer Wiseman. 
Isn't that a fascinating name for someone who's a stargazer? Wise man. There were wise men before her who followed a star. She said this when they looked at what they had found. She said, it gives me and many people pause to be quiet and contemplate this majestic universe and be grateful. We have a chance to look at it. Majestic universe indeed. How right is Jennifer Wiseman? But we would do well, moved by the indescribable grandeur of a universe beyond our speculation, to be quiet and to wonder at the maker of this. Someone once said, why are there so many universes and stars? Because it takes that, because the scripture tells us that, that, that the universe describes the very grandeur, the glory of God. The, the heavens declare the glory of God and it takes that glory to say to the human heart, this is who I am. This carpenter and his dusty feet, this is who I am. So where does that leave you and I? Because the psalmist went on. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars, which you have set in place. And he asks the question we should all be asking when you stand below that universe of stars and those universes beyond. And the, and the unbelievable greatness of, the, of, of those stars. And the question is, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Who am I? We live on a planet with 7.8 billion other human beings. We breathe a, a sliver of air so thin that had I a football which represented Earth, and, and we breathe a little part of that, the atmosphere to the height of Everest on that football would be the equivalent of the skin of a balloon stretched around that football. That's what we live in. We breathe in this tiny sliver of air. And if the little children seemed to be insignificant to the elders and the teachers of the Jews who were skipping around Jesus' feet, if they seemed to be small and it took the praise of those little ones, well then, here we are seemingly stupendously <laughs> insignificant in a moat of a planet suspended between fire and ice, breathing out our tiny lives in this membrane of air, trapping us to a world immeasurably inconsequential, surrounded by universes beyond number and created by a living, creatorial, all-powerful, glorious God whose greatness and excellence and majesty is infinitely beyond our capacity to even begin to understand. And so David asked that question. We all have to ask ourselves, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? That God should care. That God should care about me. And the thing is, it's not that God cares about you. It's greater than that. He cares for you. David goes through some of those things in the end of the psalm about what God, what God gave to mankind to rule over the earth and so on. But he comes back like a bookend to the same words at the end of the psalm as we finish. He comes back to it again. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
David, as he was going through his life as king, was approached one time by Nathan. Nathan had been spoken to by God, Nathan the prophet of God. And he came to David and he said, listen, God has told me that you're going to have an everlasting kingdom. It's in 2 Samuel 7. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I? Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And who are my people that you have brought me this far? So what has he done, this maker of worlds, this all-glorious, majestic, and excellent God? And it's one thing for us to look at the universe and wonder at that splendor, but what beggars belief, what beggars belief is that he who made this incomprehensible universe is the same man who hung on the tree on Good Friday. Colossians tells us that we have redemption through him in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation for by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things were made by him him on the cross him the carpenter before those elders whom they scorned and humiliated and beat and wept they were made by him as he bled and gave out his life all things were made by him and for him Peter hammered it home to us when he wrote in his epistle he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled his insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his own body, on a tree. When I was a young teenager, my dad bought for me a bicycle. It was a Vindec five-speed with alloy handlebars, finished in metallic red. I never forget it. I loved it. This bike that I had, first big bike I really had. My dad didn't have much. My mum and dad didn't have a whole lot. And I know now that it cost him a lot. He had to sacrifice to buy his son that bicycle. So when a few years later I lost it, I'm a bit woolly on the details. I think it was stolen out of a shed farm house we lived on, or I may have, I, I can't quite remember. But I know I was annoyed that I lost it, but I know too that he was hurt. That his son had been careless with the thing that had cost him something. Had I been careless about the sacrifice he had made for his son? And you know where I'm going with this. Have I been careless? With this sacrifice. David knew the value of being loved by God. What is mine? Who am I? Arthur Oatman also knew the value. And with this I'll finish. He wrote a 3,000 hymns in his time. 
But in understanding what it was to be loved by God, he wrote these words. I have a friend, a precious friend. Oh, how he loves me. He says his love will never end. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves me. I know not why I only cry. Oh, how he loves me. He died to save my soul from death. Oh, how he loves me. I'll praise him while he gives me breath. Oh, how he loves me. Let's just pray. Father, we're astounded when we look at the things that you have created. Our minds are too finite, too small, too simple to appreciate the great everything that lies above our heads as we stand upon this suspended planet. And yet, Father, you tell us that you, the maker and creator of all this, love us and care for us and give your son for us. Who am I? A heart great thy heart. Amen.